0: We're going to be in uh, the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 3, for our sermon teaching today. It's printed in your bulletin there, or if you have a Bible with you and want to follow along, open there, please. It's a passage about people struggling with Jesus, uh, to come to terms with who He is and seeing if they can be all right with that. The claims that He brings are so dramatic, and... Um, Anybody else has said any of the kind of stuff that he said? We think they were crazy, right? You know, um, he, it's very hard when he comes and says, "I'm, I'm him. Like I'm the one. I'm the promised one. All the Old Testament has anticipated. That was all pointing to me. And here I am. And he's a he's a man, a real man, standing in familiar circumstances to them. And they're all trying to figure out, well, is. Is that possible? Or is he out of his mind? Or what's really going on here? And, you know, most everybody's looking for a way to explain him away. A lot of people are believing in him, but even they, I'm sure, are really struggling to figure out, you know, what's going on, who he really is. I had a friend uh, a number of years ago who became convinced that he was the son of man. This is called uh, Grand Delusion in the DSM... Four or five or six, or whatever it is now, it was four then I think, uh, but he was the son of man, and I and a number of my friends, like the pastor at Catalina Foothills, we were uh, his twelve we were part of his twelve apostles. and when we heard him say this, we didn't think, maybe he is. <laughs> maybe we should follow him. We thought, hmm let's as gently as we can get him towards the help that he needs. Right? And uh, very thankfully, he got great help and is doing great today. But we didn't think, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe he is. We just thought, no, that's impossible. We're wary and suspicious like anybody would be if someone comes saying the kinds of things that Jesus said. It's confusing, though, because not only was he saying these things, he was also doing things like casting demons out of people and healing People, Not just like, you know, secret internal ailments that no one could really verify, but like hands that were withered growing back full, like bona fide miracles that people are trying to sort out too. And so they're like, well, it's not nothing, you know, how do I explain who he is? And, um, you know, the religious leaders who came, you know, they were just thinking, I know, I know, I know that he he can't be the messiah. Like, it's just, there's just no way. I know that in my gut, but how do I explain him away? And his family's like, yeah, there's no way. He can't really, this can't really be true. I mean, we know him. He's our family. It can't, it can't really be true. So they're trying to figure out things too. Like, how do you explain him away or how do you explain him at all? And they're dealing with the kind of things that almost any thoughtful person will deal with when you come into contact with Jesus to figure out, well, what do I make of him? What do I make of him? And how how big a deal is it in my life that he exists and presses his claims on me? So that's what we're going to think about today like they did then. Let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, uh, we ask for your help as we listen to your word. You know that even for those of us who've been around the church for a long time and for whom these things are familiar, um, Jesus is troubling to us and uh, threatening to us and difficult for us to um, get our minds around. And so we pray that you'd help us. Make yourself known to us in your mercy and your gentleness. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me beginning at verse 20. Of Mark three, down through verse thirty-five. It says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they couldn't even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebal. By the Prince of Demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, So how can Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise Amen. be to you, O Christ. So did you see that quote at the beginning of the bulletin, uh, the C.S. Lewis quote? It's fairly famous from Mere Christianity, uh, where he talks about, he's really talking to people in his day, You know, back in the middle of the last century, who wanted to dismiss Jesus as just being a good moral teacher. You know, they admired him and liked him, but they didn't want to really countenance all his claims to actually be the Son of God, uh, who is one who's coming to the world to rescue us. So they say he's a good moral teacher. You know, nobody gets mad at you at a party if you say that. And uh, so he said um, in the quote, a man who is merely a man that said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us and he didn't intend to. Um, Anybody ever say anything that C.S. Lewis says better than he did? He's just, it's almost unfair. Um, He's either a lunatic or he's a devil from hell. And those are the two options that uh, the religious experts and his family took in Mark chapter 3. The family said he's a lunatic and the uh, religious experts said he's the devil from hell. So it's not unique to mid-20th century England for people to try to dismiss Jesus this way. Uh, This is what they came up with when they thought about him. Uh, Most people don't say that line anymore about Jesus being a good moral teacher because they've realized what his morals are, and they're like, (laughs) yeah, I'm not sure I like his morals, so I don't know if I want to say he's a good moral teacher because... He's not altogether affirming of all the things that I do, let us say, right? Um, So he doesn't get that line anymore. Instead of lunatic or someone who's demonically influenced or just a moral teacher, what you hear more often now is that Jesus is basically a legend, that ultimately, if you drill down deep enough, he was just basically a peace hippie, you know, that who went around and said things like, Uh, you know, don't judge each other and turn the other cheek and things. And all the rest of the stuff about Jesus has been embellished on by his followers in uh, ages after he lived that brought in all these theological categories about him being uh, God in human flesh or the Messiah of Israel uh, or all the pointy-edge teachings that he gave. Really, if you understood who Jesus really was at heart, he was basically just someone who came to sort of stir up our uh, sense of self-worth and self-fulfillment. Right. And that's kind of the idea that you get from Jesus from most religious ex- experts today, uh, or people who want something polite to say about Jesus uh, in a conversation without offending. All right. But we dismiss, somehow we distance ourselves from these radical claims that he makes about who he really is and what that means for us in our lives, and how He's not just like a cafeteria option in the world's uh, ideas about spirituality and religion, but that he really is the Lord and the creator, uh, and he's inescapable for us, and we have to deal with him and make some sense of him, uh, which is what the Gospels press on us all the time. So um, I want us to think a little bit more about what his family and what the religious experts said about him uh, as a means of helping us sort out Jesus and to think, you know, how do we actually respond to living in a world ruled by and one in which we have a relationship with uh, the very Son of God? All right. So, first, let's talk about the misconstruals that you get. And the religious experts can go first here. Um, they came down from Jerusalem. We'll sort this out. We've heard there's some rumblings down here, but don't worry. You know, we're here from corporate and we're going to sort this out. You know. They're the experts from Jerusalem, and I mean, they're the experts. It'd be like if somebody came from one of our good seminaries, uh, if we were having some problems in our congregation with some ideas and we weren't doing a good job sorting them out. Well, it'd be like, let's get the best people we know to come in and advise us, and that's what happens. And they come in and they're like, oh yeah, 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 that guy, he's not, he's not right. (laughs) You know, that, he's not okay. He's, he can't be okay. Like, he's not in my tribe, and he's not flattering me. <laughs> He's not. He doesn't seem to be on my team. He doesn't seem to be all that happy with me. So he can't be right. I mean, I'm, I'm it. I'm I'm the expert. You know, I got my job for a reason, and I'm the one who knows the Bible better than anybody else I know. And so, yeah, yeah. He, there's no way he can be right. So, so, what do I tell these people about this guy? I want to tell them, no, you don't need to follow him. You don't need to listen to him. He's off. um But he's doing miracles. (laughs) And he's casting out demons. And so if you just say, pay no attention to that man, there's nothing to see here. They're going to like, yeah, there's stuff to see here. (laughs) You should see the things we've seen here. And uh, so they got to come up with something. And they come up with, well, I think he's doing tricks that are really aided by demons. I think that's what's going on. There's something like you know, occultish going on here, spiritually weird, and so, yeah, I'd, I'd watch, I'd stay away from that, right, that's what's going on, and uh, demonizing people was popular before this, and is very popular since this, but it's a common idea, one to which we're all somewhat prone, uh, if you think about your own thoughts and comments politically over the last, all of the years, you, uh, you realize that it's very appealing to demonize people who disagree with you and not just say, I think they're wrong, but I think they're bad. Right? I think they're bad. And um, it's helpful because if, if you're going to justify yourself, you really can't just say, wow, the people who disagree with me are often much smarter than I am, and they have a point. <laughs> right? You can't do it that way because that's not fun, and it doesn't give you the sense of justification that you want. It's very useful and helpful to demonize people. Um, it's bad, okay? Demonization is bad, um, if you're taking notes. The, uh, but it's really important for church folks to know this, because um, our church doesn't do this, but some churches fight. And our church will fight sooner probably rather than later. It's what churches do. And church fights are weird. Because in a church fight, you can't have just people who have a different opinion and disagree about something. You have to have the side of the angels and the side of the demons. Let's say you don't like your minister. Huh. Hypothetically, but let's say you don't like your minister. If you say, well, Pete, Technically, I guess, preaches from the Bible and isn't doing anything that we know about that's horribly embarrassing. But, ugh, I don't like him. His Preaching irritates me to death. I don't like the way he leads in the church. I don't like him very much. Um, it would be great if we could get a new one. Right? Well, you can't just say that. Because then you thought like you're a bad person. You're opposing the minister. Like, you must be unspiritual and unholy. You must have a bad attitude. But if you say instead, I'm having concerns about Pastor Garland, right? I think that maybe he's heretical, or I think maybe that he's morally scandalous. Maybe he's dishonest and a liar, or whatever you need to say. If you can demonize the guy, you can get him out, right? Um, You need that kind of leverage, though, to make yourself feel okay about being against the minister, and so church fights get super ugly super fast because we we gravitate towards extremes and we demonize and angelize ourselves. And it's, it makes living together and resolving conflict really difficult in the church. Um, just watch and see. <laughs> because it's, na- it's a very natural temptation. And the, fair, the uh, scribes who came down from Jerusalem really fell for it here. They can't just say the guy that's casting out demons is... Uh, is himself a demon? Jesus kind of made it clear that that was a pretty stupid surmise, you know, when he answered their questions. I'll come back to that in a minute, but um, I'll just say this: practice in your politics the kind of forbearance and respect that you want to have when we have to fight at church. Because if you if you have habits politically, when you come to a church fight, it's really easy to import them. And really damaging. Our uh, denominational conversations and assemblies have more and more reflected the tribal language and demonizing language of the broader culture. And it's been harmful to us. Uh, we're doing more poorly because of that. But it's human nature. We're all tempted to this. So watch yourself in your politics, demonizing people, knowing that um, it'll give you bad habits they are going to hurt things that you... Even more than your politics down the road. So, just when they were sorting out what he said to them about this, uh, Jesus drops this bomb in the middle of the conversation that has terrified Christians ever since and starts talking about the unpardonable sin. And you're like, whoa, (laughs) unpardonable sin, excuse me? And then he says it's blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And you go, What? What's blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? Is it like, it's okay to blaspheme the Father and the Son, but not the Holy Spirit? What? It's very hard to understand. And um, most of us who attempt to explain it don't understand it very well either. The most common and uh, regular answer given to the question of, have I committed the unpardonable sin? is, if you're worried about it, you probably haven't. Right? And that's the best advice. It's not, he didn't say this so that you would torture your conscience to say, oh no, did I utter the wrong syllables and now I've cursed myself forever. That's not the point. That doesn't make sense with anything in the rest of Scripture. And it's more what he's saying is if you attribute uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of God himself through his agent Jesus as something demonic, you're going to lock and close a door um, that was your only door. And so those who willfully reject Jesus when they know better uh, block themselves off from the help that they might receive from Jesus in a devastating way is probably the best sense of that. Um, If you find yourself worrying as a Christian that you've committed the unpardonable sin, you're misusing what Jesus says here, and you're not supposed to do that. So just stop it. (laughs) All right? (laughs) Don't do that. Don't come to me and say, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin, because all I'm going to say to you is, no, you haven't. Okay, so we just saved a lot of time. Uh, You didn't do it. You haven't done it. Um, But it's our attitude towards Jesus. He's it puts a great weight on that. He's saying like, do you see that this person isn't something you can just be dismissive of, like passing over a cafeteria option in the world's religions? He's it. Right. This is God uh, confronting you. God in human flesh. And you can't just you can't just ignore him. You can't just like him. Um, you have to deal with him. So they said that they thought that he was uh, demonically motivated and he was doing the miracles with the power of demons. His family just thought the boy's not right, right? They thought he's out of his mind, they said. And you can understand how they would. If you're an observant religious family and everybody in your whole religion that knows anything, that anybody trusts says, yeah, he's off. He's not right. Look, I know you love him, but... He's not right. He's, he's, uh, I think he's mentally compromised. And you're his family and you're thinking like, well, I don't want to be rude. I don't want to say I, th- I think he's crazy. But it's sort of like the most kind and plausible explanation I have is that he's lost his mind. You know, you see this when marriages come apart and people are saying, well, I, I really want my spouse to go to the doctor to see if they've had a mental breakdown or something, you know, because they think they're different than I've ever known them to be. Well, this family's looking at him, and they're like, "I don't, I don't. It's not okay. We need to, we need to intervene." And they try to have an intervention with him, right? They say, "We're gonna, we're gonna go." And they said, "You know, tell him to come out. His family's here. His mom is here. His dad has apparently died by now. Joseph's stepdad, and his brothers are there. Sisters, they, let's like his whole family, which is a huge deal in a traditional culture, and they're they're there to have an intervention." And he says the weirdest thing in the world for a Jewish man in traditional culture to say. Who is my mother and father and brothers? And I'm saying it's, it's you. It's the people who follow me. Those who follow me, which is very strange. Um, I'll come back to that in a second too. But he's you're seeing a little bit of the loneliness that Jesus endured to come rescue us. That here he does... Uh, being accused by religious leaders, dealing with a lot of conflict in his life, which is super stressful. And now his own family, who might be his refuge, are not his refuge. They just think he's crazy. And um, I think most people who follow Jesus follow him in these footsteps, too. You find that you'll be misunderstood by people that you'd really rather be understood by. Because of your commitment to Jesus, it's one of the costs of following him is that you follow him in some of his loneliness. Um, You're not lonely from him, which is pretty beautiful. Uh, You get included in his family as uh, his younger brothers and sisters. But it's lonely to follow and serve him in the world. And he endured this for us and calls us into that kind of a life as well. Most people today, though, they don't say that they think Jesus was demon-possessed, and most of them don't say they think that he was crazy. Most of them, people just say, they just think that he was misunderstood, that, that most of the weird things about him are embellishments by his later followers. And there are reasons that we don't think that. Like They didn't feel free just to layer on these theological categories on who Jesus was. These are observant Jewish people. Um, they wrote about Jesus during the time of when eyewitnesses of his ministry were still alive. So it had been hard to pull over much of a ruse because people were saying, no, I was there. I was in that crowd when that guy's hand was healed. And the eyewitnesses were still present. When Paul preached about the resurrection, he said, hey, it wasn't done in a corner. 500 people saw him after his resurrection. Go ask him. So they didn't have the freedom to embellish that way. Um, They were all compelling witnesses because uh, the disciples of Jesus, the 12 that he appointed, all except Judas, uh, died for their faith. I mean, John died in exile for his faith. The others were actively killed for their faith, according to everything we know. And none of them reneged on the story and said, no, we made it all up. He 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 was just saying, be nice to each other and love your neighbor and turn the other cheek and we made all this other stuff up. No, they all died and they all stuck to the same story. And to me one of the more compelling things about it not being a legend is that the people who wrote the legends look terrible in the stories. Like the disciples who wrote the stories look like idiots the whole time. After Jesus' resurrection, they're still going, duh, 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 you know, they don't they don't know what's going on. And I don't know about you if I'm writing a legend and I've got the freedom to, I'm gonna look a little better than they look in the stories. You know, the main apostle is Peter, and what do you know about Peter? You just know all the ways that he screwed up all the time, right? When he well knew better and shouldn't have. So the legend idea isn't very compelling. Just explaining Jesus away, he's really just a sentimental person like me, but a little nicer, and all this stuff grew up around him. It doesn't really uh, take into account what you read in the Gospels about him. So who he says he is. When they say he has a demon, he casts out demons by... um, by Satan, Jesus says, Are you listening to yourself? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Right? That doesn't make any sense. The house divided and whatnot. Think about what you're saying. But he doesn't stop there. He says, No, actually, I'm not doing this um, for Satan. What I'm doing, I'm the one who has come to bind the strong man and plunder his house. I'm the one who has come to end. His dominance in the world. I'm the one who has come to turn evil on its head and to end it. So he ramped it way up. Like if you thought he was crazy before with what he said, now he's saying, look, I've entered the world to end evil in the world. And I'm able to do that because I can bind the strong man and plunder his house. That's who I am if you're trying to figure it out. So he ramps up his claims in a lot in their lives. He's saying, you know Satan's tragedy in this world. Um, that there is supernatural, malevolent evil in the world. We don't understand it. We're not told much about it in the Bible. We know it's real. It really ramped up around the time that Jesus was alive and doing his ministry on earth. Um, But there's something behind all the cruelty we see in the world. There's something behind all the deliberate, malevolent evil that we see in the world. One of you gave me a podcast because I asked for a good podcast recommendation. You gave me... uh, uh, well, I can't read my right. Martyr So Whoever did that? Oh. Um, I've listened to a lot of it now, and it's just like the worst story of human beings in the world. Um, all situations where human beings have the opportunity, we're capable of such appalling cruelty. It's, it makes you sick at your stomach because you realize the appalling cruelty of human beings isn't just some monsters out there. It's just who we are, given the right opportunities and circumstances. And it's not explainable just by self-interest and selfishness and things like that. It it demands an explanation that there's something behind that supernatural that's going on. And this is what we're given in the scripture, is that not only are human beings broken, but there is a malevolent evil force in the world. And that Jesus came to end it and deliver us from it. When you said in your prayer that you were um, in bondage to sin and can't free yourself... Jesus says, I, I can bind the strong man and free you. That's who I am. And that's what he comes and says to them. Right? Don't, don't read this and say, this is an instruction for us in dealing with the devil. We have to bind him so we can plunder his house. Jesus is the one who binds the devil and plunders his house. That's the point of this. Right? I don't know if you were raised like I was, but we used to say that kind of thing. Um, and then his family... When they say, you know, he's out of his mind. We need to talk to him. He doesn't just say, "Y'all, it's fine. I know what I'm doing." No. No, he says, uh, he says something radically beyond what they were even worried about. Who even is my mother and sister and brothers? Is anyone who follows me? And so, what he's saying is not just not just my family doesn't understand me. He's saying. I'm getting the band back together. I'm reconstituting Israel, the people of God, the family of God. Now that's going to be anyone who trusts and follows me. The new, the real, the reconstituted Israel is going to be those who trust and follow me. So if they thought he was crazy before, they really think he's crazy now because he's making these radical claims and statements that he's more than you even thought he was. And the problems that you're identifying go even deeper than you thought they did. Um, He really is God in human flesh, and he is inescapable. And so we have to deal with him. We can't shut him up as a fool. Uh, We can either I mean, shut him up as a fool or fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But there's no in-between ground with him. You can't just like him. You can't just admire him. You know, He's not admirable if he's not who he says he was. He's not likable if he's not who he says he was. And so we're left to deal with him. Um, And this sounds like demand, mostly, when I say it this way. It sounds like that when I'm saying it. That um, I know you're afraid that if you trust and follow Jesus and submit yourself to him, that he will diminish you and he will mess up your plan for having a good and enjoyable life. You know, but you have to follow him anyway because he's the Lord. And that's true, right? You're wrong about him diminishing you or, or uh, messing up your life. He'll mess up your life, but in good ways. Uh, but there's a tremendous warm appeal in what he's saying here too. Because he's saying the life that you've lived where you, where you can say without blinking, I'm in bondage to sin and can't free myself. And you're going, yeah, that's pretty much me. He offers freedom. He offers deliverance there. And when he says, who's my mother and brother and sisters, it means that he's willing to know us not just as our dominating king, he's willing to know us as our loving older brother and to invite you back home into a relationship with him that will make you who you were always meant to be, that will make you thrive as a human being in a way that you never otherwise could. And so when you face his claims, they're a little intimidating, but if you look at it closely, you see they're extremely warm as well. But at the end of the day, you're left with the question you know, is, what will you do with Jesus? All right? What will you do with Jesus? All right, pray.